This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Right now, it's time for one of my favorite sequences on this program, or segments, I should say, and that's, of course, Dr. History. And this week, Dr. History is going to be hosted by Gary Shoresman. How are you? Fabulous. Thank you. Good morning. You want to tip that mic up just a little bit? You're taller than most of my guests. There you go. Good. Gary Shoresman. And last week, let's bring everybody up to speed as to what took place as you were fiddling in for. Um, Dr. Ken Turner last week, you had an excellent story about some of the families and some of the pioneers that were in the ranching community out by Malta and the Raft River area. Bring us up to speed as to what we talked about last week. Well, we started about uh, how the uh, California Trail broke off from the Oregon Trail right there at uh, what we know as Yale today at the head of the Raft River, or the end of the Raft River, I should say. Uh, Then we were talking about um, some of the uh, people who settled that area early on were from the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And that they had come after the war, come up east or west, and uh, several of them were on wagon trains heading to Oregon and this and that. And then they see Albion, and then they end up staying in this area and becoming uh, families are still here. Some of those Civil War veterans were uh, the Cosman family. Uh, Hardy Sears, Dan Stark, Charles Gray, uh, who was with General Grant, uh, Charles Albertson family, uh, George D. Burdick. Uh, he was killed, but his he was killed in service. But his family uh, came on out to Albion. Uh, Joseph uh, Haroon Haroon Jr. was in the 102nd Illinois Infantry. Josiah uh, Josiah Miller was in the Pennsylvania Volunteers. John C. Rogers was in the Missouri Cavalry. Uh, Jacob Patton was in the, with the Union at Chattanooga. And Andrew Lounsbury was with the 36th Volunteer Infantry at Potomac. Let me ask you a question right there, Gary. And I'm sure with your historical uh, knowledge background, you probably have the answer to this. But here we're talking about people from Pennsylvania. We're talking about people from the East Coast. We're talking about people from Missouri. All of a sudden, the patriarch of the family says, go west like Horace Greeley, and why here? I mean, they they were going into a completely unknown area. Well, you had to and remember you to get a little now closer at to the, uh, the first uh, wagon trains, they come out about 1834, yeah. so uh, the Civil War is over in 1865. 
but you jump on the freeway. Well, the freeway happens to be the Oregon Trail. Yeah. And we happen to have where it cut off to go to California. So anybody wanting to go west, particularly in this northern part of the country, uh, was headed either for uh, Oregon or for California. And, of course, at the division here, they run into these little... um, uh, places, but also these people became Mormons, and a lot of them then came up. They were converted, came up, and started. They love these little valleys, and uh, they got towns like Almo, Raft River, uh, Stravel, Yost, Alba, Elmo, Albion, all going in the early 1870s. And so that's way before the project that we know today as the Minidoka Irrigation Project didn't yeah. happen for another 35 years. Uh, when they came out here in their covered wagons or just a horseback leading some pack horses, virtually they had nothing except just the clothes on their back, a pair of boots, maybe a gun and a rifle or whatever, and had, yeah. and set down roots to start a home or a ranch in this area. They had some provisions. If they didn't have to eat their horses and cows along the way, uh, they did. Uh, when they found where they wanted to stay, they turned the buckboard wagon over and and lived under it. It became their house with a frame around and made a door and made do. And he went out and started to find out where they were. And she set about keeping house, setting really? up a little place to live with the kids. And they always carried a starter of yeast. So all they had to do is find a place to bake some bread. And they were starters. But these people helped each other. They didn't just land out by themselves sometimes. I see. A lot of them, there was other people here, and they were welcomed. You know, but just talking about looking at the situation and the scenario, let's just say out at Raft River, you're not going to find a Baskin-Robbins. You're not going to find a Kmart. You're not going to find a general store. You're not going to find a post office. What a completely desolated feeling these people must have had sometimes. Well, there's a man... uh a Mrs. Overton Johnson and William H. Winter, as they traveled here in 1843, they put in their journal, having attempted the crossing and finding it too deep, we were obliged to continue down the south side, and they're talking the south side of the Snake River. Right. This is perhaps the most rugged desert and dreary country between the western borders of the United States and the shores of the Pacific, and that's a quote. It is nothing else than a wild, rock, barren wilderness of wrecked and ruined nature, a vast field of volcanic desolation. They were describing today's Owyhee County south of the river. Wow. And so, uh, and the route, you know, continued on from here on over to Homedale and then up to Fort uh, Fort Boise. Right, uh, right. Anyway, that is true. That's what they found, and that's what they were dealing with. But along the way, at one time, they talked about the Oregon Trail being the biggest wrecking yard in the country because there were crosses, burial sites. There were cattle bones and horns and ribs and uh, carcasses. There were furniture thrown out. There was broken down wagons. There were broken wagon wheels. And you didn't take it with you. You dumped it and went on. A lot of people have the misconception that the Oregon Trail, uh, in its uh, most consolidated sense, was the trail. Actually, it was a wide expanse uh, and offshoot from the original Oregon Trail because they had to forage, find forage for their animals. And they might have been two, three, four miles away from the Oregon Trail but going in the same direction. Am I wrong? Oh, yeah. No, you're right. It's a good example of that was like they were in deep trouble by the time they got to the end of the Humboldt River over by Lovelock, Nevada, 
Well, anybody that knows anything about Lovelock, you think there's nothing there but Alkali Flats, but it happens to be a beautiful meadow in there at the end of the Humboldt. But the 40 miles from there on into what we now know as Sparks, Nevada, was barren, lonely, and drought-ridden. Right. And so they people camped there for weeks, or sometimes you had to get your horses fat again. Sometimes they were so skinny and your oxen and whatever that they could hardly pull your wagon. So you had to wait for them to eat, get water, but you also had to take care of yourself. Uh and hope nobody got sick. I have a question there. I mean, when they left, like, St. Joe, Missouri, or whatever the case might be as a starting point, how did they know that they weren't going to be immediately in back of somebody that was bigger and had more cattle and needed more grazing? I mean, they could have ended up in a real wreck not having any forage for their livestock, etc. These wagon trains are pretty well organized because they had a wagon master and you had to sign up and there was a list of items that you needed from guns to how many pairs of socks and underwear each individual should have. Really? Because that was a long ways across the country to wherever they were going uh, before they ever crossed the Blue Mountains or, or Donner. Right. And so uh, they were only allowed so many things, but if things got tough, they were required to dump. Out of the, if they lost a horse, no one else was going to give them a horse because everybody was looking out for themselves, and they were all required to take care of themselves. And if they, had to, if they lost their wagon, well, they were at the mercy of someone else, or they were... Were they, after, you said this basically started in 1835, but as the years progressed into the 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the 1870s, were there way stations and or general store types available on the Oregon Trail for the replenishment of supplies like either horses, wagons, wheels, food, guns, etc.? Only forts uh, here and there, and then... uh, when they would run a po- across a rock, like in Wyoming over here with where they painted people who came before them with right. axle grease, painted their names, they said, okay, we're on the right road, I guess. But the Whitmans and the Spaldings, the missionaries, came through here in 1834. Uh, Fort Hall was first settled in 1834, so there really wasn't anything there. Um, and then Hudson Bay sold that fort in 1836, uh, and it stayed a trading post until 56. And then um, military post was built on Lincoln Creek, approximately 40 miles north of the first site of Fort Hall in 1870. And uh, there was uh, another road branched south. There were little row immigrant roads go here and there because also at the same time there was mining up north, up into the Rexburg area north that way. And then there was mining up in Haley. Mm-hmm. That all kind of had started all. And then we're also in the gold rush days uh, in, that, in that period. So, uh, so you said that they were primarily moving into Raft River in the middle portion of the 1860s up into about 1870. And looking at the calendar of things that had happened back in the 1870s, of course, 1876, the uh, uh, massacre up in Montana with General Custer and the Indian Wars, uh, there were still some pretty unsettled areas, were there not? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you remember the Mormons didn't come until 1837, um, the treaty between England and the United States fi- fixing the boundary, the 49th parallel, uh, but the uh, boundary with uh, uh, became Oregon Territory was 1846. Washington Territory uh, 
Idaho became part of Washington Territory in 1853, and then in 1863, Idaho becomes territory. Right, right. And so uh, the first courthouse was at Pierce, Idaho in 1862, and then we have... uh, the, we get our first newspapers in 63, and um, uh, the Silver City Avalanche began in 1864. The migration from Cache Valley to Bear Lake Valley comes. And 1864, there's a first school. Um, then 1869, President Grant really establishes the Fort Hall Indian Reservation, so that's just the same time as the very first settlers are coming in here. And at that time, Chief Pocatello was running things. Really? He was the head man, right? At that time, early okay. on. And he had, with we mentioned uh, old Charlie Park, and uh, he had uh, had a relationship with them. But he was, old Charlie was as tough as the Indians. And so it was, you know, it was, if anybody was ever going to beat anybody, they, they were going to have a fight to the draw. Let's go back out to the Raft River area for just a minute, like you were talking about last week. And all of a sudden, the families are coming along on the Oregon Trail, and they get to the branch of the California Trail and the Oregon Trail, but they decided to stay. What did they do to try to discern the parameters of their property? How did they discern who had what and who was going to control what with their farms, their ranches, etc. There is one, um, it's the uh, Pierce and, um, hmm, I've lost the first name, but prior to that, they had grazing rights from 20,000 to 100,000 cattle from Southern California straight all the way up through Nevada into which came into Cache County at one time. Wow. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so they had grazing rights all the way. And that's when you see these long cattle herds and, and that you used to hear about, you know, going to Kansas City and going to market and this and that. But they had the big longhorns in the Sacramento Valley that range that whole area because 
The Sacramento Valley around Sutter Fort was very much like Raft River. Now, Raft River was a river that needed to be reckoned with because you need a raft to get your wagon trains across it, or more than one. So it came from south of the mountains by the Utah border down by Yost, and Cassia Creek then also drained into it. And so when you get to where it dumps in, where it crosses the freeway, that store over there at Raft River today, uh, it was a, a big river, and it dumped into Well, today, it's only a canal. What it's dry. to it? It's dried up. Yeah. It's dried up. Water's been diverted here and there, and you don't get the rainfall. Mm-hmm. The creeks don't. Uh, Cassia Creek still runs a little bit through that Connor Canyon. But at one time, it, it was a relatively big river. Well, then you it created for centuries a huge swamp, marshland. Really? And that's why they call those towns Marsh Creek and Marshfield and all that kind of thing. And it's just kind of like where that KOA campground is on the Declo exit. They had to drain all of that before they could even put some of the road in because that was all marshland. Really? And uh, trying to get through, if you ever walk through marshland, you know, horses and cattle are up to their knees in it, but it grew grass up past their heads. So it was beautiful. There was these reports of the first people that went in. There was buffalo. In there, there was antelope, there was elk, there was moose, there were wild horses, there were deer, there was ducks, there was anything and everything you'd ever want. Muskrat, beaver were all right at their fingertips. So basically, it was the land of plenty back in the 1860s, uh, and really an open-door policy for somebody to come in as a settling family and really uh, make some roots and establish a great family heritage. They took the land that they could handle. And some of those people had thousands of acres. Others had just their own little meager things. But they all had cattle uh, and, and some chickens and things like this. So there was also a, a big turn when the sheep came in and back and forth. So there was a little thing going on there. Cattle had outgrazed something, but a sheep will come in and eat everything. It'll take yeah. it right down yeah. to the root. And so then there was a few periods where there was less rain and you had some starvation and then troubles between the cattle and okay, the sheep Okay, so people. if they established a uh, an environment out at Raft River, and let's say that they had, uh, how many families originally moved into that area to establish a ranching clan? Well, I have uh, 18 Civil War people right here, okay. and that's not counting the other 50 probably or more i don't have an exact count but this uh i have this 18 civil war veterans that came right to the albion area and and uh raft river area they were people that had few needs and they built or created a lot of the necessities that they made but where did they go was it down to salt lake or where was it for supplies they had to have some things kelton early on had a railroad that came up to kelton and it was that was the end of it for many, many times. Really? But these people were self-sufficient. When you go down to the Elba and Oakley and Rafter area and see some of those early brick homes they made, these people were major craftsmen at whatever they did. They didn't have nails. Well, then they built pegs and, and built uh, uh, their houses with pegs or grooves or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they made do. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So they were very self-sufficient. They already had a craft, and some of these were young kids. Some of them were like 14 years old, 19 years old, out on their own, and they were drovers, and they worked with these cattle drives. They worked with these families, and then, of course, families intermarried. You know, you get your son marries the neighbor's daughter and this and that, and pretty soon you can't sling a cat before you're not related to everyone. But uh, they did get along, and also in 1862, we had the... um, 
Homestead Act, for so you get 160 acres. So they could lay claim to 160 acres for sure, but it was mm. open range grazing. That's the difference. So they had their little homestead. Now, Gary, of the families that you talked about and the names that you mentioned that came out here from the post-Civil War era, uh, how many of those families still living out there today are related to the original pioneers? Oh, lots. Oh, a lot, a lot. Uh, it's kind of interesting. You see those people coming in the 1870s to the turn of the century. How many still own some of those over a hundred year farms or ranches? Wow. Uh, yeah, like the uh, first dry farmers that came out to Kamima and Adelaide, uh, 330 of them. You'd be surprised how many of their descendants are still living down here, and maybe how many of those great grandkids don't even have a clue that their grandparents were out there in the first place. Oh my goodness! So we have lots of descend- descendants from um, uh, each immigration or each migration out here. And mm-hmm. early on, when the Minidoka Dam came, see uh, this irrigation project for Rupert and for Burley, the out of the Snake River, was advertised all over the world. So people came out here thinking, man, we're going to get a piece of the pie. Well, think 1905, uh, there wasn't much land to be had anywhere. So you came to this area, and it was a great place, but little did they know that they were going to have to clear the sagebrush off, and then they were going to have to live in a little shack to, to prove up for your home part of the homestead deal. But they didn't get water, some of them, for five or six years. And when the wind blew, can you imagine what a mess those people lived in out there? You know, every day, and I've got a hard break coming up here, but every day in that kind of existence was a day of challenges just to stay alive, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Wow. It was. Uh, what got me started on this was speaking there, this, the Arid Acres book I did, the third edition of those Kamima Adelaide farmers, was I was tracking down a woman by the name of Lydia Miller, and her father, Carl Miller, was one of those people. Well, lo and behold, if I didn't happen to run into a guy by the name of Bob Tyler, who she happened to be his mother. Oh, really? And she married an old cowboy named, named Artie Tyler, who was hardcore, hardcore, boiled to the thin, fit a horse like you couldn't tell where it began and where it ended. Anyway, that's how I got started on what's going to be our big program and my next book I'm working on for September. We're on the phone with uh, Substitute Doctor History this week, and Gary Shoresman is filling in for Dr. Ken Turner, and I'm very honored to have him on the program this morning. And we're talking about the settling, if you will, of the Raft River area out by Malda and the many, many ranch families that still have heritage and relations here today. Gary, what was it like in the old days, in these old cabins? I mean, my goodness, you would have thought that boredom would have set in and sitting at that one-room cabin with maybe a wife and two little kids and nothing to do except just look at the four walls in the wintertime and, and the same sustenance of food every day, not a chance to go to Baskin-Robbins and get maybe a different flavor ice cream. Wow, that was a tough existence, wasn't it? They made do. Uh, their main reading was they took time daily. Um, a majority, I'll talk for the Christian people, uh, because they were the majority at that time, and they had their Bible, and they read from it. Yeah. Uh, they had uh, storytelling. Uh, they worked from as soon as the sun was up until they went down, and they didn't come in until it was dark. 
the woman, of course, was you had to heat water. The kids were hauling water. You had to chop wood. You had to either butcher or skin or something this or feed your cattle or whatever, or you were constantly repairing corrals. There was everything you had to do on a daily basis to upkeep your house. If you had a sod roof, you had to make sure it wasn't leaking, uh, make sure there wasn't mice or rats in it or whatever. Uh, and, you know, those people all slept in one room. Yeah. And they didn't stop having kids. They just kept going on and on and on. And it's you know, like several families live in a one-room shack with 11 kids. So, you know, you grow up with that, and it's just you accept it because that's the way it is. It's amazing to me when you think about the hygiene and you think about the food factor and the preservation of food or the lack of and the clothing factor and everything else. Man, oh, man, I, I don't know how they did it. Once a week, you got in the bathtub. Really? Or if you were out in a creek, you could jump in the creek and, you know, take care of yourself there and this and that. But uh, generally, the water started with the baby, and then mom was in it, and then grandpa was in it, and dad, everybody was in it. They used that water, and then it went out on a tree. Oh, boy. How'd the tree fare? So they didn't waste it. (laughs) Some of those trees are still there. (laughs) But, you know, I think that's an in-depth look as do we always see, like, the Bonanza TV program, or we'll see all the old westerns where they they really don't show how primitive it was to really exist in those conditions. They were glorified, uh, you know, wealthy. Uh, What happened with the American dream? You came to America, got rich, and Dan Cartwright, and they all had fancy horses and rigs and all this stuff, and they had a Chinese cook. But these people had to get what they had. Now, you watch daily that a coyote didn't kill your dog, or a coyote didn't get your sheep, so you need to save the dog, or the coyote didn't get your chickens, if you had chickens, and then you cherish the eggs. Then you had your milk, and then you also had to separate the cream uh, off the milk to make yourself some butter. So there was always something in the making, and they could make food out of nothing. These women, they could bring together a full dinner. You know, if somebody was coming or if they needed it, go out and kill a chicken. Mm-hmm. And then you had a full meal, and then she'd use the bones and scraps to make a nice soup for the next day with, with um, rolls in it. You know, you were mentioning when they all left, they were given a list of things that they had to bring with them. Uh, And then if they lost a horse, they were basically on their own. And if they had any other material problems, like maybe lost a wheel or a hub off a wheel or whatever, they basically had to fend for themselves. But when they got to their final destination and set up camp, if you will, or their homestead, it seems like everybody really chipped in to help each other. Well, and there was also businessmen. Don't think that the... uh uh, American way of life wasn't set in because there were opportunists who were ready to take your last penny and tell you, sell you land, sell really? you this, sell you that, at inflated prices. So they were, the hucksters were all there. You know, it's kind of like the medicine man selling snake oil uh, out of his covered wagon. And then when people started getting sick, they ran him out of town. Were, th- were there a lot of problems with the Indian tribes in this area? They started, uh, I have a, a little story that I want to read to you. uh, And it's particularly around the Massacre Rocks area. And this came out of the Immigrants History history book. Uh, It says, On August 9th, 1862, about 100 Shoshone under Chief Pocatello gathered west of American Falls and attacked 11 wagons. 
By the time the rest of the wagon train approached, most of the men had been killed. The next morning, 40 men went out to recover the stolen stock, but they were driven back by 300 warriors, and three of the whites were then killed. The immigrants waited until their group numbered 700, so they were wagon trains were catching up with them. Oh, and so they were, But they were harassed all the way to the Humboldt, which is way down into Nevada, where the Humboldt River right, begins. Right. This was one of the incidents that led to the Battle of Bear River, a massacre of Indians early the next year in which several hundred Indians were killed, about which... And more stories are told, told about that one. Not all the purported attacks were by Indians. Now, here's the fun. We've seen some of these westerns where the white guys are dressed up like Indians. Mm-hmm. Some were white Indians pretending to be Indians. And there was unthinking killing of Indians by whites for reasons that seem ludicrous, if not downright cruel. A reprehensible example of immigrant brutality was a Texan traveling western Fort Hall in 1845 who saw an Indian near the trail. He rode up to him, struck him, handcuffed him, and tied a rope around his neck and fastened it to the rear of his wagon. The rest of the company was so intimidated by the bully that they did not interfere. Now, no one in that wagon trade said anything. So, it's you know, we even have that syndrome today where someone can be stabbed to death in the street and everybody's looking out the windows, but nobody goes to their Absolutely, aid. Absolutely, yeah. So, this cruelty went on for a week until the Texan thought the Indian spirit was broken and he put him to work on various tasks, including driving the wagon. So, the Indian was no better than an animal uh, to this man, mm. but apparently to the others who didn't stick up for him either. So, uh, there was a code of conduct out there that you didn't put your nose in if you didn't want to have a, you know, a, a shootout with each other. Uh, anyway, uh, one night the Indian slave disappeared, taking with him some of the Texans' personal effects, including his $100 gun. The company members were elated, particularly when the Texans' wonder dog was unable to track the vanished Indian. <laughs> Let me ask you a question right there, Gary, because Hollywood and television have portrayed the Indian attacks one way and how they were uh, fought back by the settlers, etc. How realistic is that? It, does Hollywood really portray what happened, or is it quite a bit different in real well, life? Well, it's the gist of the idea, and then, of course, you have to embellish it. Right. You know, so you had the wagon trains, and yes, they were dressed like that, and yes, they went into a circle, and yes, some of that stuff happened, but the how, why, and whatever, and how many times, uh, uh, what we did not see is how many horses were always killed. So if you shot at an Indian, you may not have hit him, but you got his horse. And how many horses and cows were shot and killed in that skirmish around the wagon train? Are there accurate accounts uh, via diaries, etc., as to what really happened in the settling of the West, and primarily right here along the Oregon Trail? There are a few. Uh, and particularly when you get into the diaries, first-person accounts, then you really kind of hear or get a feel for how it really was. One of the discrepancies is down at Almo, where you know that image, that monument is for the 300 people that were killed. Exactly. Yeah. But ironically enough, no one was. It was never reported in any papers. So. Did it happen? Didn't it happen? How big was it? How little was it happened? It all depends on who's telling the story. Nevertheless, the monument is still there. Something happened. It was on the California Trail. But when you think about these immigrants having been there so early on, it's funny that, well, when I say these settlers came, and I forget what year that was supposed to have happened, but 
these early immigrants that we're talking about early on down the Raft River and mm-hmm. Almo and Alba and mm-hmm. uh, um, that there weren't first-hand accounts of that exact thing that happened that traveled down because early on they were homesteading in uh, City of Rocks. So it's interesting. There's many different kinds of stories like that, that uh, some are documented and some are not, but it never hit the national newspapers, but you would have thought that it would for that many people. You know, Gary, when you think about it, here it is, 2015, and it wasn't that long ago that this really was a wild country right through here, and uh, there was a lot of settling going on. Oh, absolutely. It's a lot of history right here in this area. Yeah, we got tons of history. It's just it's just absolutely amazing. You know, in 1879 then Cache County is created. Okay. Uh Albion is the county seat at that time. Then Stars Ferry out uh, west of of Burley uh was the first ferry there, but it was very uh, and it was a main direct route from Kelton, Utah, on the way to Boise. I so see. there was a great, uh, direct stage route and freight line route. I see. But that Stars Ferry got people up into Haley, and those were the huge ore wagons really? that would come. And there was a stories about some of those ore wagons that sit here and wait at the river for three days, waiting for the wind to calm down because you couldn't put that big wagon on that on that ferry and expect the waves and, the, and not to blow it over or tip it. What did it take from, like, Haley up at the mines uh, to get down to, I'm sure that you're probably going to say Salt Lake City was maybe the main hub they were trying to go to. Uh, what time uh, frame did it take to get there? Well, see the, uh, oh, weeks. Really? Yeah, weeks, depending on if they had a breakdown, if they had this or that or whatever. Uh, there was any number of things could happen. Uh, if your horse got bit by a snake, if your horse lost a shoe, if the wagon wheel broke, if a tongue broke, uh, if the breech broke, all kinds of things could have happened along mm-hmm. the way just to get there, you know, really? traveling over the rocks and the sand, and it was labor-intensive pulling through that desert sand. Absolutely. And those old rows, but the biggest danger was trying to get across the river on a clear, quiet day. Really? You know, if you take a little boat out there, you don't want to be on this Snake River when it's choppy, let alone put a huge ore wagon and 10 mules. <laughs> that could have been a mess. Gary, yeah. uh, I've got to kind of sum things up a little okay. bit, but uh, all in all, give us a little summation of what your thoughts are about the hardiness of these people, the toughness and tenacity of these people that settled out here. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing, and it was just a few years ago. Uh, we have only, Idaho, since it was a territory, it's only been 150 years. Idaho, Minidoka County was just 100 years ago, uh, a year ago. Uh, when you think that we have a lot of 100 years here, uh, and those immigrants all came from another third world country or where there was, uh, they were persecuted, come here for freedom. For, of land, freedom for religion, freedom uh, that they could be who they wanted. And now we're giving this country away. The grandkids and great-grandkids of this country who are enjoying everything that you and I enjoy today do not remember where the hell they came from. Oh, my God! And that's the big saddest part about talking about this wonderful country that we had and the hard work that all these people did. And then look at the situation we're in. It's sad. It's awful. It's It's disgusting. 
do the kids here in the school systems, do they know and understand and appreciate? Are the teachers teaching the history on a local basis as to really how these different towns uh, came to be and everything? It's you, not in the books. Not in the books. Not in the books. Not in the books. Uh, the centennial, I gave 14 our presentation, PowerPoint presentations to first through sixth graders. They, the, when I said, how many of you are relatives or have descendants from the very first homesteaders on the north side, they all raised their hands and they were all from the 1953 homesteaders. None of them remembered that they, some of them were from 1912. Dry farmers first. Wow. Gary, I'm flat out of time, but I think you've got the nucleus if you're back as a guest host to have more programs. And uh, you did a wonderful job Good, on those thanks. folks out at Raft River. It's so interesting and to think that a lot of their relatives are still here today. I only got started. I know you did. Great job. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. History and our sub-host for this week, of course, is Gary Shoresman. Thank you very much. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.